Hey, everybody. Welcome to another week of Trashy Divorces. I'm Alicia. My name is Stacy, and this week... Oh, it's so very hard <laughs> to say I'm sorry. The song, Hard to Say I'm Sorry, performed by Chicago, Peter Cetera, when he was their front man, written by David Foster, Whoa. who is my yes, Trashy yes. Divorces profile this week, mm-hmm. and just octaves and octaves full of trash candy. Five wives, four divorces, much, much more than that. Stacy, this week you're doing a little bit of a a little bit of a slide. I'm doing a little cleanup from the Jerry Lee Lewis episode a few weeks ago covering his cousin Jimmy Swagger, the televangelist. No divorces, but it's such a juicy scandal and such a such a hallmark of that period of the late 80s, like I couldn't resist. It was a nice contrast with the abundance of divorces <laughs> from my story. Indeed. <laughs> Before we get started, let's pull out this magic mirror and give some big thanks and praise to our newest Patreon supporters. Yeah, thanks for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces, Kat E, Ruby F, Jen R, and Mary H. We got a new super supporter as well, Tracy B., We hope to see you on the Sunday Salon call tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Thanks so much to all of our Patreon supporters. Thanks so much to you for tuning in. We got two of them. Never say, I'm sorry. Not only is it not hard, it just doesn't happen. Just uh, get some soap handy because you're going to want to wash those trashy hands. Once we go, go, go. Alicia, today you've got someone that we've imported to produce Trash Baggery. Is that true? One y'all have wanted for a long time. This is season 11 of Cleaning It Up. Welcome to the trashy divorces, trash baggery, and every octave of every key today, David Foster. Whoa. Five times married, four times divorced. Wow. Multitudes of trashy. Big thanks to Melissa O for her research help on this. Good Lord, it's trashy. Let's just get into it. David Foster was born November 1st, 1949. He's a Scorpio man. Victoria, British Columbia. Hmm. He's always talented in music, this kid. In 1963, at the age of 13, he will enroll at the University of Washington Music Program. From there, his musical career starts slowly and becomes legendary. That's just the music, because it's not long before his womanizing career commences. It does help if you can play an instrument, I'm told. And is more notorious than legendary. Okay. Now, I'm not going to discount David Foster's contribution to the world of general music. He's a great musician, a gifted songwriter. He's won 16 Grammy Awards, an Emmy Award, a Golden Globe, and three Academy Awards for his work. He's attributed with launching the careers of a lot of successful musicians, Celine Dion, Hmm. Josh Groban, Michael Buble, He's instrumental in furthering the careers of others, not only through his songwriting, but collaborations and his producing for these artists as well. Legends, Alice Cooper, Rod Stewart, Kenny Rogers, George Harrison, Barbara Streisand, lots of TD alums in there. Mm -hmm. In his personal life, he's probably one of the biggest trash bags of all time. He will describe himself as a quote unquote runner. Explaining that as soon as problems emerge in a relationship... This is not about his penchant for half marathons. He's out the door. Uh, He will go on to say, it's more like, hey, there's a shiny new thing over there. This is not working, so it looks a lot better to me over there. Hmm. He is a self-admitted control freak. 
egomaniac, and quote unquote, an asshole. Wow. Well, I guess he calls it out. Like, to be fair, sure. He's pretty forthcoming about his notorious and legendary ways. Yeah, I guess you never have to work on yourself if there's always a next one. Well, he's always enjoyed the spotlight. Sure. Loves attention. There's a 2020 Netflix documentary called David Foster Off the Record, which exposes the aspects of his personal and professional life, and they're not at all flattering. Foster himself is honest about himself in the documentary, admits to a lot of his faults. So at least he's honest about what's terrible. He doesn't necessarily apologize for them, however, or admit needing to change, but he at least acknowledges, yes, I'm like this. (laughs) He says he probably wouldn't be like the younger version of himself, who he calls cocky and brash. His daughters, four of them who were interviewed in the documentary, are also frank about their mixed feelings about their dad. They openly talk about the pain and the trauma that they lived through, but also discuss the positive aspects of dad. It's a real, it's a real mixed, mixed I'm, plate here. I'm certain, yeah. Now dad, David Foster, does say he's sorry to his daughters, but he also tells them, pull up your bootstraps and get on with it. <sighs> There's always a next dad. Now, well, I mean, there's something here, because then the next line, he's admitting he could never sit with any of his children and tell them he really loved and cared about them. There's lots of stuff going on in this story. David Foster married five times. He has six kids. He's been open about the struggles of being a father while trying to juggle a career (laughs) as an award-winning producer and composer. Is it the career he was juggling? I'm not sure. He will tell people in 2020, I missed a lot because I didn't raise them. The geography was really tough. That was my own doing and a regret I have, but it was what it was and there's no changing it. So I did the best I could, which was quite imperfect at times. Plus I worked so much. I mean, I made a pound of music in my life. Not an isolated incident, but there is one example I think that really clues into some behavior here. He leaves his wife, Rebecca, for another woman. When she has three kids in the house, one is seven months old. Again, from the Mm -hmm. (laughs) 2020 documentary, Off the Record, David Foster will say about himself, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I wake up and think I'm the greatest thing ever. On Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, I think I suck, and that I haven't accomplished anything, and that I better get to it, and that I'm a fake and a fraud. And on Sundays, I don't think about it at all, and that's the truth. Let us commence on an abbreviated timeline in history of David Foster's trashiness shall we? David has an oldest daughter, Allison. Now, while giving a child up for adoption in a person's early life certainly does not qualify for any kind of trashy behavior. Yeah. Not at all. But in David Foster's case, it's the beginning of essentially abandoning many people along the way to his career success. If you don't fit in his goals and plans, you become very extraneous to his need for you. His first child comes before his first wife. Allison Jones Foster was born in 1970. Foster, dad, David Foster is 20 years old. She's adopted. David Foster will not reconnect with her until she's 30, potentially to her advantage. (laughs) They reconnect in 2000 and Allison will become important and very active in the Foster family. She is now the director and secretary to the board of the David Foster Foundation. Okay. Okay. So that's cool. I mean... 
No, we're starting I, nice and easy. I'm, I'm glad that they've been able to build a relationship. That's very good. Nice and easy. <laughs> Let's continue. Mm-hmm. We have David's first marriage to B.J. Cook and their daughter, Amy. Now, David Foster meets Bonnie Jean Cook, B.J. She's a singer and a songwriter. They meet in Vancouver <laughs> in a bar in 1972. David's trying to put together a band. B.J. is a talented singer. Lots of charisma on stage. David Foster, maybe a little conventional, maybe a little plain in appearance and performance style. And there's something about BJ and her flashy, colorful feathers that David is drawn to. BJ will ask for an audition for David's band, and she will become one of the lead singers of Skylark. Bonnie Jean gets pregnant in 1972. Couple decides to get married, which they do the following year. BJ will perform on stage with Skylark during her pregnancy. Their daughter, Amy Skylark Foster, is born July 29th, 1973. BJ will say about their time together, I always say David Foster and I were a great team, but a lousy couple. (laughs) This marriage will come to an end in 1981, and BJ Cook will move to Toronto that same year with their daughter, Amy. Now, Amy will go on to have a successful music career of her own as an adult. She's collaborated with Michael Buble, has written songs for Blake Shelton, Destiny's Child, Josh Groban, Andrea Bocelli. Like, she's a big deal. But David Foster admitting to Amy and the damage he caused to his children by not being present and available to him. David will say his kids have scar tissue. Amy will confirm this by saying, I have 10 siblings and I'm an only child. That's really fucked up. Wow, that is, uh, yeah. That's a great quote. Okay. All right. We continue. (laughs) Oh, my. Second marriage to Rebecca Dyer. They have three daughters. Foster will marry his second wife, Rebecca Dyer, October 1982. They have three kids, Sarah, Aaron, and Jordan, 81, 82, 85, respectively. They'll end up divorcing four years later, 1986. So this is the wife he abandoned with a seven-month-old? Almost there, yes. Okay. Aaron and Sarah have had some success in acting and reality television. They do a VH1 mockumentary called Barely Famous. (laughs) That's a great title. (laughs) David Foster's daughters with Rebecca Dyer are active parts of his life as adults. They're open about their relationships. They also get along well with David's latest wife and their newest stepmother, Catherine McPhee. Rebecca Dyer is the one David leaves to move in with Linda Thompson when their youngest daughter was seven months old. And other good behaviors. Let us get to the third marriage to Linda Thompson and their two stepsons, Brandon and Brody Jenner. Oh, of course. David will marry his third wife, actress Linda Thompson, in 1991. Linda is the ex-wife of Caitlyn Jenner and the mother of Brandon and Brody Jenner. I guess it was too much to ask that we would be outside of the Jenner Kardashian universe for a Oh no, week. we're okay. about to dive back in, Woo! baby. Okay. Keep up. You got to keep up with yeah. the Kardashians. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Linda Thompson mm-hmm. is also the former long-term girlfriend of previous TD alum, one of your profiles, Elvis Presley. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Linda Thompson and David Foster become a songwriting team. They collaborate on several songs, including I Have Nothing, performed by Whitney Houston on the Bodyguard soundtrack in 1992. 
David Foster and Linda Thompson and Thompson's sons will live in Malibu. Now, David Foster is going to play a much more active role in raising Brandon and Brody Jenner than Caitlin does. Now, this is odd because so far David Foster has girls, but he gets two sons. Mm. And these are the kids he's like. Stepsons. But ha Yeah. You shall continue my line. Okay. Some of his children, some of his daughters, <laughs> have expressed resentment about this fact. During this marriage to Thompson, David Foster was featured on an early and short-lived reality show called The Princes of Malibu, where both of the Jenner boys starred in the show along with other wealthy and spoiled Malibu kids. Linda Thompson will publish a memoir, Little Thing Called Life, in 2017, And in that, Linda will describe being trapped in a miserable marriage to Foster and suggested that Yolanda Hadid, his next wife, is much better off without her King David, quote unquote. So he makes an impression. Linda Thompson will continue Hmm. describing David Foster as jealous and controlling during their 14-year marriage. She will reveal... Foster forbid her from watching an anniversary special about Elvis because the two had been in a relationship all those many moons ago. She was also not allowed to talk about Elvis, which is a weird thing to get hung up about. It really is, yeah. I mean, we're in... Also, he's dead. 30 years later with a... Right. Okay. She's not going back to him. It's... (laughs) And unless David Foster believes the rumors about like Elvis faked his own death, but no, it's wow. So Linda Thompson has agreed to be interviewed by Larry King about Elvis for a Larry King yeah. profile. And David Foster becomes irate one night at a dinner party. Okay. He's going to tell the talk show host, fuck you. How would you like me to ask you about all the women you've been with in front of your wife? Mm-hmm. Maybe even worse, David Foster also has issues with Caitlyn Jenner coming by his house to visit Brandon and Brody. Wow. So Caitlyn wants to visit her sons and he's, wow. Now, Linda Thompson's not done. She will describe Foster's views on women as antiquated, Hmm. quote unquote, saying, at times he had an expectation that I was there to serve and take care of him to make beds and do housework. Adding that during this time, Foster didn't believe that women should have careers. He found ambition in a woman to be unattractive. This time in like the 80s, 90s? Is that where we are in time? Yeah, this is mid 2000 aughts. Yeah. Eek. Yes. Women, get in those kitchens. Stop with your ambitions outside the home. Oh, Linda's not done in her memoir. <laughs> She will explain that David Foster wanted her to quit acting, claiming that Foster said, I don't want you being an actress because you might have to kiss somebody. And if you do, it's not going to work for me. I do wonder if his weirdness about her relationship with Elvis is just that Elvis, like no one's more famous than Elvis, right? Like he will never be as famous as Elvis. There's nothing he could do to be as famous as Elvis. (laughs) Maybe after this episode, I don't know. (laughs) All right. To further explain Hmm. how Foster treated Linda Thompson during their marriage, she will describe a time where she had gotten into a five-car pileup in 2002. She will call her husband, naturally, to tell him about what happened, and he will say, well, what do you want me to do about it? 
At least he didn't say, like, well, women shouldn't drive anyway. Well, no, this is even more disturbing because listen to this hypocrisy. Like, be anything but a hypocrite, man. All right, David Foster had been in a traumatic car accident himself and should have understood that kind of emotional impact. Mm -hmm. Why, do you ask? In 1992, David is driving a Chevrolet Suburban on the Pacific Coast Highway when he hits actor and dancer Ben Vereen. Like in a vehicle or? Yeah. Okay. So in a strange sequence of events, Ben Vereen is walking alone. Okay. So he's a pedestrian. Okay. Yeah. Walking along the highway near Foster's Malibu home. He's in, you know, kind of a day. He's just, you know, walking. And David Foster strikes him. David Foster doesn't know that Vereen had been hit in a car accident a little earlier before, which is why he's wandering along the side of the road in a daze. So he's Ben Vereen has already been in a car accident, causing him to hit his head on the roof and is now walking, I guess, to find help or okay, dazed. Okay, okay. And he doesn't realize how injured he is, and he's walking in a confused state. David Foster hits him. Jesus. Uh-huh. Ben Vereen will suffer a stroke as a result of his head injury and walk in front of Foster's vehicle. Well, this is terrible. Ben Vereen, critically injured, Mm -hmm. but fortunately recovers after going through physical rehabilitation. Here's the irony, though. This is all, like, pretty traumatic. If David Foster had not struck Ben Vereen that evening, Ben Vereen would have died on the side of the road from a stroke. Good lord. So, David... Weirdly saved his life. Weirdly saves his life because we're able to call medical attention to it. But the hypocrisy here, Mm -hmm. even after experiencing this kind of... What just happened? I was going to get a gallon of milk. Right. David's unsympathetic to his wife after her accident a decade later. Okay, this is my favorite part. The relationship between the two is so ugly. It is devolved that at one point, David Foster packs his bags and leaves home and will not come home until his list of 15 demands are met. You have the list, right? I have a few of the list. Okay, okay. Two, two of my favorite. I can't wait. Uh, no one could park in his parking space. <laughs> okay. You ready? This is my favorite. I'm imagining a very large driveway. No one could sit on his throne oh chair. And the wife is supposed to enforce these rules? I think she just has to obey the rules. Oh, so by no one, he means her. Well, no one probably... The kids have teenage friends over. Teenagers don't care where they park. They're or, just parking. Or, oh, it's a chair. I'm gonna sit there. I don't know if this. I don't know if this is your official space, dude. Does he want to put a little a little sign up? Maybe. <laughs> it's my throne space. Parking for world's weirdest dad only. <laughs> <laughs> Although this marriage is long lived. 14 years, the couple Sounds will. miserable, though. Surprisingly, divorce in 2005. I guess she probably only got like 12 or 13 of his demands. Thompson, I guess in an effort to be fair to her ex-husband, says that he has since apologized for his behavior during their marriage. That's good. <laughs> Throne chair. Dad only. David the Eighth. Good Lord. All right, let's go to our fourth marriage. (laughs) Yolanda Hadid. Three stepkids here, Gigi, Bella, and Anwar. 
So David Foster has a very public marriage to his fourth wife, Yolanda, thanks to her role in The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Right. I was going to say. Okay. Hadid is a former Dutch model who had three children, all of whom go on to be successful models in their own right. Pretty family. David and Yolanda do date for several years prior to their November 2011 wedding. They get engaged Christmas Eve 2010 and started planning a fairy tale 11-11-11 ceremony. November 11th, 2011. David Foster, you'd think, you know, four times around. I don't know how she feels about his throne chair, but he encourages her to be on the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills because David will say, I want you to have your own money and I'm not going to support you or your children. Which is one thing. Okay. Okay. I guess if you go into it. I guess he's moved along from Linda Thompson not being able to act. (laughs) Maybe he's de-antiquated his views. Oh, he's a feminist now. Well, no. Because on the opposite side of that, it's super obvious that David Foster is using this platform to promote himself and his career. The couple are filmed at events, and his talents and accomplishments are a frequent topic of converse. David, David, David. Okay. During her time on The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Yolanda Hadid struggles very publicly with chronic Lyme disease. At first, David is shown to be supportive but quickly he's around less and less and the couple grows distant. Hmm. At one point, Yolanda moves out of their Malibu mansion and into a small high-rise condo because it's supposedly easier for her to recover there. But to most viewers, it seems fairly clear that she and David are no longer getting along. Right. David Foster, for his part, will deny full-throatedly that... Yolanda's illness had anything to do with his decision to file for divorce. Going back to the 2020 Netflix David Foster off the record documentary. The fact of the matter is that was not the reason I left. It was for a different reason, which I will never disclose that had nothing to do with her being sick. It just sounds petty. If I say she sat in my throne chair. No, I don't parked in my parking space. Whatever. Okay, so Yolanda... I just couldn't do it anymore. Yolanda has a memoir. Believe (laughs) Me is the name of her memoir. Believe Me. Of course. Mm -hmm. Okay. She will express a contrary opinion. Hmm. Yolanda's pretty clear that the illness was the cause of Foster's loss of interest and love for her. She is gracious enough to him, though, saying that she was the one who changed due to the illness And she was no longer the same woman she was when the couple had dated and married. That's not unreasonable, but also that seems very generous of her to say. She freely admits that she was no longer well enough to do the traveling and other things, other activities that the couple had previously enjoyed, and accepted that Foster was unable to adapt to the sick Yolanda. I think that sounds a lot like you've been gaslighted for a lot of years, but I shall continue. Wasn't going to say anything. I went from being the funny girlfriend who was up for anything and had endless energy to the wife who was too sick to be by his side. He lost his wingman, his partner in crime, and I felt as if he got impatient with my recovery. Not sure if you know what marriage is, man. You get the shiny things, right? Yeah. 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 Well, I hope that her health is better without him. 
I think it would have to be. Mm-hmm. Although Yolanda claims not to fault Foster for his reasons to end the marriage, she does not really appreciate his approach. Uh, in other revelations from her 2017 memoir, she will write that Foster said to her, I can't do this anymore, and your sick card is up. Yikes. His angst <laughs> culminates in his breaking the news of filing for divorce on their fourth anniversary. Okay. I, okay. That's trashy. No, that's, that's super gross. Moving along into another octave of some trashy, uh, Foster has been romantically linked to many more women than just the five he marries. After his divorce from Yolanda, he'll date Selma Blair, Elizabeth Hurley, Christy Brinkley. None of these relationships last long because Foster will marry for the fifth time to American Idol runner-up, actress, and fellow musician, Catherine McPhee in London in June 2019. Great timing if he doesn't like sickness. (laughs) David Foster is 35 years older Mm. than his new bride. The couple has a whirlwind romance while he is finalizing the divorce from Yolanda. McPhee had recently ended her two-year relationship. That's a little bit messy, but not as long or as prolific as the messy of David Foster. But in October 2013, McPhee is seen kissing her smash director, Michael Morris. Okay, Michael Morris at the time is married to actress Mary McCormick, and they have three daughters. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay, before their romance, Catherine McPhee had David Foster play the piano at her first wedding to Nick Kokos in 2008. Okay. But they've known each other Okay, they've known each other. Okay. They go back. Previous to another decade... Still, that 35-year age gap exists. Draw your own assumptions. In the Netflix documentary, Catherine McPhee seems determined to help Foster grow as a person and improve his relationships. I can fix him. Regarding Foster's trouble emotionally connecting with people, Catherine will say, My generation is much more open to communicating and understanding why you do the things you do. You stick with the things that don't work and you figure out how to make them work. What we work on together is empathy having long conversations that he doesn't want to have. <clears throat> I'm sure this is going to be a, a long marriage. Mazel. Good luck. Uh, although younger than four of his five daughters, mm-hmm. uh, David Foster's family seems to approve of new wife, Catherine. His oldest daughter, Amy, says, Catherine McPhee does not need David Foster. Very talented, very successful, has her own money, doesn't need him. She's with him purely because she loves him. They're a very good match. Recently, Foster will tell Us Weekly, Mm -hmm. she's really magical and able to float in and out of all the family dynamics. Hmm. It's amazing to watch because that's a huge talent, being able to navigate my life. Well, maybe it's going okay. About his marriage to McPhee, David Foster was asked if he's tired of running and he'll respond, I'm not tired of running, no, no, but I'm very happy where I am. The couple does welcome their first child a son in February 2021, just this year. Congrats. I mean, maybe fifth time's the charm. I don't know. Mazel. Congratulations from Trashy Divorces. Mm -hmm. Y'all have waited a long time for the... We hope not to be covering him again in the future. Many, many octaves of the Trashy Divorces of David Foster. Do we have a trash can rating here? I think we do. In honor of the 88 keys on the piano, 
I'm awarding him 88 trash cans. Yeah. Filled with various awards. Filled with baggage and pianos, man. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Does he qualify as an all-star? He's pretty trashy. He's getting close. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Congratulations, David Foster. Yeah. 88 trash cans mm-hmm. for you, filled with ambition and regret and trauma along your path. The, oh, fill in with a throne chair, too. If you would just mark the parking spots, <laughs> could save yourself a whole lot of spousal support. I'm just saying. Get some signs for 12 bucks at Kinko's. You can. 15 demands. I'm going to work on my 15 demands later tonight. Do. I wonder if Inman will obey them. <laughs> he will not. Don't sit in my throne chair. David Foster. David Foster. We're coming back with a trashy divorces adjacent sort of mm-hmm. story. But trashy. Uh, it's really hard for me to say I'm sorry. We'll see you on the flip, y'all. Dear listeners, we interrupt your regularly scheduled ad time with a public service announcement from our friends at the Oak Tree Group. September is National Preparedness Month. As explained on ready.gov, National Preparedness Month is an observance each September to raise awareness about the importance of preparing for disasters and emergencies that could happen at any time. The 2021 theme is Prepare to Protect. Preparing for disasters is protecting everyone you love. It was started in 2004 by the Federal Emergency Management Agency to encourage Americans to take steps to prepare for emergencies in their homes, businesses, schools, and communities. The ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you get financially prepared. Things happen and everyone should have an emergency fund. It is the foundation for any financial plan. If you would like some help getting your financial preparedness plan together, call the women of the Oak Tree Group at 770-319-1700 or visit their website at www.theoaktreegroup.net. Mention this announcement for your free one-hour financial preparedness conversation with the Oak Tree Group. The contact details can be found on www.theoaktreegroup.net. And for those of you who celebrate, happy cat month. (laughs) Hey, Trash Pandas. When you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project, an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So, Stacey, we got a big old collection plate of Trashy this week. You got something, a little, little bit of a different angle. Yeah, we really do. Um, I like how our late in the season stories are often things that were so striking from earlier in the season that we just can't resist covering them. To that end, my story today, for instance, does not include a technical divorce in the normal sense, but a divorce from reality? 
Perhaps. So we're going to go back to the 80s and take a look at one of the best known and most scandal-plagued hucksters of the era, televangelist Jimmy Swaggart. I remember all the tears. Oh, there yeah. Were so many tears. I have sinned. This dovetails out of our Jerry Lee Lewis story a few weeks ago, since these guys are cousins who grew up together, playing music together, before they decided on two different life paths, although with some overlap, it seems. Also, the film The Eyes of Tammy Faye will be arriving in theaters in the next week or so, so it seemed like a good moment to revisit some of the 1980s televangelist scandal stuff. Not resurrect. It's my favorite. Wow, you went there. Okay. Wow. Jimmy Lee Swaggart was born March 15th, 1935. He's a Pisces. Nah. In the town of Faraday, Louisiana, which we talked about a few weeks ago, nestled against Lake Concordia and the Mississippi border. Faraday had a population of around 2,500 when he was born. And when he was a child, that... That place is a real cage. Sorry. Okay, I'm done. Faraday cage. You're really, <laughs> wow, you are on it. When he was a child, that juke joint that we talked about with Jerry Lee Lewis, Haney's Big House, opened. And it was it was this hot spot for touring bluesmen of the era. And so interestingly, like the town, t- tiny little Faraday, Louisiana, played kind of an outsized role in the development of the Delta Blues, which would then breed R&B and rock and roll. So anyway. Haney's was a big deal on that circuit. Haney's, it should be known, burned down in 1966 and was never rebuilt. Will Haney, the owner who would drag Jerry Lee Lewis out of the bar because it was segregated. Exactly. Segregation never worked against white people, to be clear. Like the ramifications of young Jerry Lee Lewis in that bar would strictly have been on Will Haney, not on Jerry Lee. Anyway, Will Haney died six years later at the age of 76. Wow. mm -hmm. But, you know. Big, important life. Jimmy Lee had a big family, like, you know, I think most people at the time did, certainly in the South. So, again, he is cousins to both Jerry Lee Lewis and country star Mickey Gilly. Not to belabor the point, but putting on a show was something that was in in the blood, in his community, and in his family. He grew up in an Assemblies of God church with 25 whole members, but Keep in mind that teeny tiny Faraday is three quarters black at the time. And Jimmy Lee's church was, you know, segregation, almost certainly all white. So basically it was a mega church right there. And <laughs> little Faraday. Faraday. Yeah. Hallelujah. All right. Jimmy Lee played music in the church. And when he was 17, he married fellow congregant, 15-year-old Francis Anderson. Still married to this day. Wow. Not without problems. How do you think old Francis' life has been? It was 1952, and now young Jimmy Lee had a family to support in a place where money was not exactly falling out of the cotton fields. The family was poor, with Jimmy cobbling together what he could from part-time jobs and occasional gigs singing gospel music at church. Their only child, son Donnie, was born in 1954, and soon after, Jimmy started preaching the word, raking in 30 bucks a week or so. That is $10 per person per week, Alicia. So I'm sure they were fine. <laughs> they were not fine. They were poor as hell. Yeah, it sounds like. They were itinerant, just traveling to preach and perform and whatever. They were often sleeping in the basement of whatever church he had just preached at or in a pastor's guest bedroom. This is the time period when Sam Phillips of Sun Records in Memphis approached Jimmy Swaggart, because Jerry Lee was already signed, and he was like, I want to release a gospel line. 
come work for me. Jerry hey, Lee's, you're my guy. Jerry Lee's making twenty thousand dollars a week. We can definitely do better than thirty. That thirty bucks a week you're pulling in. So Sam offers Jimmy a contract, but Jimmy knew what his calling was, and it was not playing devil's music for Sam Phillips in Memphis. Even devil's music about God. Even that. So yeah, he, his calling was preaching the gospel, and he would not trifle with his calling, at least not yet. So there is a saying that when God closes a door, he opens a window. In Jimmy's case, it was that somebody gave him a flatbed trailer in 1955, and he began traveling across the rural South, hosting revival meetings, passing that plate. Okay. Mm -hmm. Within a few years, he had gained enough attention that he started recording gospel albums you could have jump-started this. You, you anyway. went the long way around, Jimmy Lee. He did. So he starts recording gospel albums, distributing them to Christian radio stations. And in 61, he got himself ordained as an official Assemblies of God preacher and everything. In no time flat, he had a radio ministry up and running, and the grift was on. By 1970, Jimmy had a physical church in Baton Rouge and was broadcasting a 30-minute telecast on local TV there. He purchased an AM radio station to broadcast Christian programming, and he would eventually own a network of radio stations to, to, to get his word out. Some ambition. And sell plenty of merch and albums and such. I think he saw what was happening over in Virginia Beach with Pat Robertson's TV startup, CBN. Right. And he wanted to make sure he was not missing out on the power of mass communications to generously bring souls to Christ or cynically line his pockets. By 1983, more than 250 stations across the U.S. broadcast Jimmy's telecast, either from his church in Baton Rouge or from the many crusade events that he held in big cities around the country. You know, you got to go convert the, the, the city folk. That's a lot, 250. The show was also broadcast in 145 other countries. What? Translated into 15 languages. He was a big deal in the televangelism world. And by the mid-80s, he was the top-rated televangelist around. And it was a competitive market back then, if you'll recall. I mean, Jim and Tammy Baker, for sure, Jerry Falwell, Pat Roberts, and like Oral Roberts Lots was of one of the pioneers mm -hmm. here. Like, yes, crowded market, but Jimmy Swaggart managed to distinguish himself somehow. He was raking in $150 million a year. What? Yep. <gasps> Life was pretty good. Better for... than 30 bucks on a... <laughs> Back of a flatbed flat trailer. trailer. Wow. Can we say hallelujah again? Ah, Jimmy. Here's how the LA Times described the parsonage where he lived back in 1988. Quote, his two-story high-columned parsonage, as it is called by ministry officials, sits behind a tall fence to assure privacy and is situated on 20 landscaped acres, including a swimming pool. The highly polished parquet living room floor is partly covered with an oriental carpet and off the master bedroom is a step-up jacuzzi with faucets in the shape of golden swans. I wonder where his throne chair is. I have known a few normal clergy people in my day, and I feel like this is not how they lived. I feel like this is not, it's not what a normal parsonage is like. I do think you get your own dedicated parking space, though. Continuing from the LA Times story, Swaggered and his wife, Frances, drive matching late model Lincoln Town cars and fl <laughs> fly to appearances around the country in a private Gulfstream jet aircraft that once was owned by the Rockefeller family. 
The Swaggerts have accepted gifts from loyal members of his video flock that include a diamond-studded gold Rolex watch, fine clothes, and a mink coat. Back to not the LA Times story, but informed by media. Also employed in Swaggerts' ministry, Francis's wife, Donnie, their son, Donnie's wife, Francis's brother and his wife, Francis's sister, and even her mother at the time, who was probably no spring chicken, but whatever. 22 Swaggart relatives were on the payroll the, at the ministries. The family that grips together. I mean, make it rain. <laughs> uh, there was a total workforce of 1,200. So I guess 22 is not outrageous, but I would assume all of them were in leadership positions. So the parsonage house that Jimmy and Francis lived in on the church's dime, again, was valued at $1.5 million by the Baton Rouge tax assessors. Wow. God, seriously, all clergy I've ever met are just like, oh, this is so gross. All right, son Donnie's house back in the 80s, uh, also owned by the church, was valued at $726,000. These are 1980s figures. This is unreal. I mean, real estate has appreciated a bit in the... 30, 40 years we're talking here. All right. Do you think that he missed the Beatitudes in his religious training? I think he missed a lot in his religious training. A lot. The Los Angeles Times again. Quote, Swaggart pitches his records, tapes, Bibles, and study course with seriousness and aplomb. Hadn't said in a recent book, viewers who get on his mailing list are asked to contribute to a variety of causes, like feeding children in India and building churches in Africa. They also get the chance to buy 8-track tapes or cassettes of Jimmy Swaggart's greatest hits, because many items are offered, quote, for a donation of a specified amount, unquote, the purchasers can claim their purchases as a federal tax deduction, Haddon said. Tax law is different now. I don't know if that is still true. This was, again, 1988. All right, let's get to the scandal that Jimmy Swaggart is perhaps best known for. Jimmy Swaggart was a minister for the Assemblies of God, right? And as a big deal minister, sometimes he liked to throw his weight around, as happened in 1986 when he revealed that a fellow minister, New Orleans church leader Marvin Gorman, was having an affair. Gorman had taken a 100-member church and grown it to a 6,000-member church with its own international televangelical footprint. Wow. It was all too close, too similar, too ego-bruising for Jimmy, who would also attempt to grab Jim and Tammy Faye's PTL ministry when they were swept up in scandal that decade. So Jimmy decided it was time to take Marvin Gorman down a notch or three or four. Well, Marvin Gorman was obviously not thrilled by this turn of events, especially after the Assemblies of God defrocked him. <gasps> Marvin would later sue Jimmy for $60 million. I don't know how that turned I, I think it was settled. He probably didn't get anything like $60 million, but all right. To retaliate for Jimmy Swaggart's perfidy and ungenerousness or whatever in dealing with the situation, Marvin, who had begun receiving anonymous phone calls about some of the less savory habits of his frenemy, Jimmy, hired his son, Randy, and his son-in-law, Garland Bilbo. Nuh-uh. That is a real name. Garland Bilbo. Garland Bilbo to head on over to Airline Highway outside of New Orleans, a seedy stretch of road that was known as a pickup area back in the day. No idea if it still is. I want you to imagine this. So a couple of chuckleheads get the hot tip that Jimmy Swaggart is meeting sex workers at a low-rent motel. So they set up shop in room 12, prop up a camera with a telephoto lens, and they wait. 
sure enough, Jimmy arrives later in his big town car and <laughs> and uh, wearing a sweatsuit, he heads into room seven. Randy and Garland, not sure how long he's going to be there. They run out and they let the air out of Jimmy's tires. So oh, God. he will not be able to rapidly Please. scamper off. Then they head back to their room and they call, you know, Marvin. They call Papa. Like, we got him. Got him. Got he's him. in our net. He's in room seven. You got to get here. All right. By the time Marvin arrives, he finds Jimmy fiddling with his flat tires in the parking lot. But the chuckleheads up in the motel room have photos of Jimmy exiting with a woman, a sex worker. Marvin's like, hey, Jimmy. Fancy meeting, meeting you, you here. here. <sighs> to be clear, Marvin was not in this to destroy Jimmy Swaggart. He just needed a little blackmail material <laughs> to get Jimmy to weigh in with the Assemblies of God organization. To it's it's ha- just a little friendly ba- blackmail, man. Look, Jimmy, yeah. I I send you're sinning. Let's all be sinners. Give me... Give me my frock back. I want to give you this air pump for your tire. Want to be refrocked? <laughs> Do you have AAA, Jimmy? It's a good investment. All right. <laughs> so yeah, Marvin's missing his frock. He would like to be refrocked. He would like Jimmy to publicly apologize to him. It was a great plan. And after the sting operation at the Travel Inn, Marvin and the Chuckleheads. They head on back home and they just sit down and wait for everything to get back to right. How long does that take? Never. It never happened. Shocking, I know, but Jimmy Swaggart is not a man of his word. Marvin sat on his info for close to a year before he finally sends Jimmy a note. And he's like, look, fix this or I'm putting this info out like up to you. No response. So Marvin gathered up his evidence, took it to church elders, and the scandal began. This was February 1988. The surveillance happened in 86. And on the 21st, Jimmy Swaggart very famously took to the pulpit of his Baton Rouge church to deliver his tear-filled, I have sinned speech, asking God to use his blood to wash and cleanse every stain until it is in the seas of God's forgetfulness, not to be remembered against me anymore. Wow, that's some really flowery language for, I've been bad. The Assemblies of God suspended him for three months. Yeah, hard for me to say. I'm sorry. Mm. Uh, It was standard to suspend ministers for two years in cases of sexual misconduct. Journalists noted that Jimmy Swaggart's ministries paid $14 million to the denomination, and perhaps that had something to do with the little tap on the, not even slap, just tap on the wrist. 12% of a sentence? Yeah, that's weird. It was so incredibly, I mean, it was super public, uh, and it was so hypocritical that the National Presbytery of the Assemblies of God stepped in and told the state, like, you you guys, do you know what a black eye looks like? Because you're giving us one. This looks terrible. You got to give them more. Yeah. Yeah, this is hypocrisy in full public view. You can't do this. So the state broke down, applied the longer suspension, but... Jimmy Swaggart pops back up into the pulpit after his three-month suspension. He had failed to convince the national organization that he was actually repentant for anything he had done. Surprising that. So the Assemblies of God defrocked him. Oh, Lord. Hey, Alicia, what does your favorite band do when their record label drops them? They go indie. 
which is exactly what Jimmy Swaggart did. Welcome to Jimmy Swaggart Ministries, a fully independent, non-denominational Pentecostal media platform operating out of the Family Worship Center in Baton Rouge and broadcasting globally on radio and TV as the Sun Life Broadcasting Network, SBN. Wow. And the grift goes on. This was not the last we would hear of Jimmy Swaggart and his fungible pants. New band name. (laughs) On the 11th of October, 1991, police in Indio, California, pulled over a car that was driving on the wrong side of the road. Oh, no. Behind the wheel, Jimmy Swaggart. With him in the car, a woman named Rosemary Garcia. Not Francis, then. No. Rosemary would helpfully later tell reporters, he asked me for sex. I mean, that's why he stopped me. That's what I do. I'm a prostitute. That is a quote by her from 1991. Rosemary, telling it like it is. You know what? (laughs) One of these people is honest. It was a very big story. (laughs) Although by then, I think the heyday of televangelists as a cultural force was really receding. Bill Clinton would become president a year later further polarizing these hypocritical moralists with his own sexual misconduct. Swaggart's congregation gathered the next Sunday, undoubtedly titillated to hear another screeching, tear-stained confession about his need for God's love and forgiveness and forgetfulness. But instead, Jimmy Swaggart took the stage and declared, the Lord told me it's flat none of your business. (gasps) Well, that's quite a departure. His son Donnie followed him explaining that his father would be stepping back for a while to do some healing. Oh, yeah. But I don't think that really happened. And and that was that. That was it. Swaggart, his wife. I only cry one time for y'all. His wife, Francis, his ministry, they're all still around. I went looking to see if I could find more recent uh, financial data, but it's a religious entity, so they don't have to disclose any of that to the public. Son Donnie is a fellow preacher and televangelist, and of course, remarried Jerry Lee Lewis earlier this year. Presumably, he's next in line to run the grift, but hey, Donnie has his own son, Gabriel, also a preacher now. So this thing is just gonna, got generations yet, yet to be grifted. So that's the uh, late 80s, early 90s trash can spectacular of uh, Jimmy Swaggart and his tracksuits and misadventures on roads. Do we award trash cans for that? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, great. Oh, yes. I have a 150 million trash cans for him lined up in front of a dirty motel on Airline Highway, but also just sort of spiritually following him occasionally. Fantastic. Dumping trashy water on him to wash him clean. Are they filled with potatoes? Because that's how he paid Garland Bilbo. <laughs> Baggins. Garland Bilbo Baggins. <laughs> no, that's the guy's real name. Gar- wow. Garland Bilbo, son-in-law. Love it. So, woo. Once yeah. again, trashy divorces. A ride you never see coming. Yeah, not not a technical divorce. He divorced his church. He definitely divorced whatever he presented as his own code of conduct. He divorced reality. <laughs> Uh, that was a ride. <sighs> Flat, none of your business. Unlike trashy divorces, where it's always our business. Uh huh. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening. If you need more trashy divorces, 
Don't forget, I added some new stuff on our free Patreon episode link. What is that, Stacey? That is bit.ly slash trash candy. You can check out various things that we rotate out from behind the paywall. You can find us over there. If you need more trash candy than that, we're almost up to like 800 episodes or something over there. Ad-free early content, dumpster dives, spider webs. Oh, just started Trashy Victorians as well. You can check us out over there at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. We will be back on Wednesday with another trashy breakup. Oh, this one's going to be good. Yeah, it's this is heavily requested. So get your pants on or take them off. I don't know. It's got, it's optional. Well, just make sure you're not being photographed through room 12 in the village you're in. Or wherever. Can you ever know? Good Lord. Hey, everybody. Until we talk again, keep your pants preferably on. Keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy. See you Wednesday, friends. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.